So how often do people bring up the Wolf of Wall Street to you? Pretty much every day of my life. <laughs> it was a great movie. Steve Madden. <laughs> Steve. Steve. My friend from school, Steve Madden. Welcome everybody to In Conversation with Shopify Plus. I'm your host, Jason Buckland, and we are thrilled to have you along for our interview series where we speak with the very best and brightest in business. Our guest today is simply one of a kind, Steve Madden. You know him not only as the guy whose name is on a few hundred shoe stores across the world, but you also know the infamy of Steve Madden, the man himself, the addiction, the prison time, and the financial crimes that made his story one of the central plots in The Wolf of Wall Street. Stick around with us for the next little while because you are going to hear Steve with precisely no ego and no airs about him. And he's going to talk as openly as you can about why Steve Madden is not backing off retail stores, what not to do when you're taking a company that you founded international for the first time. And of course, we're going to get to a really good and really honest conversation about Steve's rise, his fall, and his comeback too. First of all, getting out of prison it's the greatest feeling. For the first month, you're like floating in the air. All right, we go to him now. Our guest today is Steve Madden, the founder of the footwear brand that takes his name. His book, The Cobbler, How I Disrupted an Industry, Fell from Grace, and Came Back Stronger Than Ever is out now. He joins us from his home in Manhattan. Steve, great to have you. Thank you for being with us on In Conversation with Shopify Plus. Hey, it's great to be here. Steve, before we go back and get into your story and into the book, why not begin with a few things about what you're up to and what the latest with the company is? Steve Madden has more than 220 stores worldwide, and most of them are back open now, at least in some capacity. Stores right now are obviously giving companies fits in some ways because they cost quite a bit of money to run. And at least over 2020, and likely for a little while longer still, they're simply not pulling near the volume they used to. What does Steve Madden, the business, need from its stores in the short term right now to weather this storm? It's a very tough time, but there's no replacement for a great store where you put your merchandise out and people come and touch and feel it. Unfortunately, less people are in the malls and there's capacity, you know, sort of requirements. And so that's unfortunate, but there's nothing like a store, nothing. Uh, I can't wait for us to be back. And there's a lot of slagging stores off these days. It's clicks, not bricks, and I don't agree. We have a great internet business, which we're partners with you, but there's nothing like a great store where people can smell it and touch it and feel it. I'll never get tired of that. Has anything over 2020 made you believe that Steve Madden may rethink the ways in which it operates stores going forward? Nothing has really changed. I mean, we just, the COVID has just accelerated, you know, the, the digital explosion. I mean, it's just pushed it like, 4x but there was nothing that we didn't think of before we knew that everything was moving to you know everything's on the phone and everything's on the internet so we knew about this but we always think how we can be different in our stores 30 years ago is when you founded this company in 1990 with 1100 bucks and a car trunk full of shoes aside from a 31 month interlude you took from the business which we'll get into a little later where does 2020 rank among the most challenging times for the company when stacked up against three decades of running this thing? It's the most challenging year, for sure. You know, when we were started, we, the sky was the limit. I mean, I came out charging. It was a different, 
different time. You know, it was fun opening new accounts and making more shoes. And, you know, every week was bigger than the week before. But um, now we're dealing with this pandemic and it's, it's worldwide. There's no place to hide from it. I wanted to ask you about your beginnings, Steve, and specifically this narrative that keeps coming up about you and even that you've helped contribute to yourself. In Madman, the Netflix documentary about you, one of the first lines is this voiceover from a TV host calling you an unconventional CEO. Mm-hmm. That clip is from back at the time when you were CEO. And even on the jacket to your new book is a blurb from Kenneth Cole, the American designer and contemporary of yours, who says you're, quote, an unlikely entrepreneur. What was the industry response to you, especially so from those in high fashion and footwear, when you first arrived on the scene 30 years ago? Well, I was always uh, sort of an enfant terrible, and uh, I'm too old to be an enfant terrible right now. But I was, you know, I was a little bit of a rebel and uh, did things differently and dressed differently. And I suppose I wasn't thought much of in the beginning. Steve, you have been incredibly candid and forthcoming about how your 20s were spent working hard during days and then using hard during nights. You get clean, however, in your early 30s, which is when you found your own company. But you said that a new addiction gets its hooks into you then, an addiction to money. You know, there's a lot of addictions. There's food addiction. There's sex addiction. There's workaholism. There's gambling. You know, it's like anything to get out of yourself so you don't have to feel. For me, I experienced all of those things, but I first had to surrender my drinking and drugging, right? I surrendered that, and then I could deal with those other things. So I was talking about workaholism, which is the same thing as this quest for money, and it's not as easy to see as sort of like, you know, the pain people applaud, if you know what I mean. Money is great, I mean, you certainly can live a very comfortable life, but the problem with that is it's never enough. There could be a point where $50,000 is all the money in the world. And then when you get $50,000, it's 400,000. And then $400,000 is all the money that you could ever imagine. And when you get that, you don't think you have enough. You've said that you're a naturally negative person, Steve, always pessimistic. And I heard you once say that At least you used to think you were going to go out of business every single day. Yeah. How did that kind of unrelenting sense of worry actually drive much of what Steve Madden the business became? Well, you're not complacent and you respond to everything as if it was an emergency. No, I always had this sense that the sky was falling and I was made fun of, you know, was very worried. Without getting into the weeds too much, there are certain principles in the company that exist today that existed when I started. One was inventory. We were in an inventory intensive business, but I was always very focused on getting rid of it. I I remember when I started and I would have like eight extra cases that I didn't ship out and I I would just not be able to sleep at night. There are going to be people listening to this interview who are from all points on the business spectrum. Maybe they're in the CEO chair already, but more likely is that they're a little further down the company ladder or somewhere much closer to the beginning of their own journey in entrepreneurship. If I ask you, Steve, to think 30 years back and what jumps to mind today, what would you say were some of the smartest things you did in the early days of Steve Madden? And what are some things that make you say, you know, boy, what was I thinking? One of the things was in my stores. Uh, when I opened my stores, you were only allowed to wear Steve Madden. And that was a little bit like, you know, 
Why can't I wear my Converse or, you know, whatever? Or it was like a hard and fast rule. I'm glad I did that. And I still have that rule. It's about the message that it sends. It's not so much the woman or man wearing my shoe. It's more, well, you're not even wearing your own shoes. Why would I buy shoes from you? What about the flip side of that, Steve? What kind of mistakes did you make back then? Well, getting involved with, you know, the Stratton guys was certainly a mistake. Initially started by raising money for my company, but, you know, taking that kind of shortcut was something I wish I never did. So how often do people bring up the Wolf of Wall Street to you? Pretty much every day of my life. <laughs> it was a great movie. Good. I'm going to cut in the lobby. I cut a genius. Okay. Enter Steve Madden. Great American cop. Red hot ladies footwear impresario. And thanks to Donnie, we were taking his company public. Indeed, of all the places your story has been told, The Wolf of Wall Street has become a standard reference for people. The movie, of course, stars Leonardo DiCaprio as Jordan Belfort, the infamous stockbroker and founder of the firm Stratton Oakmont. And you get involved in this world through another broker at Stratton Oakmont, a guy you knew from childhood named Danny Porish. In the movie, he's loosely the guy played by Jonah Hill. Stratton Oakmont was famous for being a pump-and-dump company, and by your description in your book and what people generally know to be true, they made money by shoving the stock of lousy companies upon unsuspecting clients. And in 1993, here comes Steve Madden into the Stratton Oakmont universe to become a public company. But the point I think that gets lost in the retelling of the story is that your company, a young Steve Madden, which then had just opened its first store and wasn't typically the type of business that would be yet filing for an IPO. In fact, your company was theoretically to be one of these quote unquote lousy stocks being pushed on clients alongside these other kind of penny stock companies that the world would never, ever hear from again. Yes. You, I don't even know how to respond. You're hundred percent right. We, I knew so they brought companies like mine public and, and it was, they were small little companies, but I knew that I had something, you know, I wasn't sure. I wouldn't, I was never, I couldn't swear to you that I was going to be a billion dollar company, but I knew I had something special. And, uh, and I think it was the only company fast forward to 25 years later that has made it. Taking a quick break from our chat with Steve Madden to bring you a preview of our next episode in this series, our interview with Dylan Lauren. You know her as the woman behind what's been called the world's largest candy store, Dylan's Candy Bar. And of course, she has a fairly famous father you might have heard of too. People are like, oh my God, <laughs> can I see your closet? Oh my God, your dad's Ralph Lauren, can I touch you? But you know, when we talk about business, we both, we have a very similar artistic passion for what we do. My inspiration was definitely Willy Wonka and Disney movies. And my dad took a lot of inspiration from classic movies. And I think I learned that through him, like how to create a lifestyle brand, even just with candy as he did with a tie. And, I, and it's because I think we both are the customer, but we wanted to create a world that other people can enjoy as much as we do. That was Dylan Lauren, the founder and CEO of Dylan's Candy Bar, who was next up in our series. Before we get back to Steve Madden, this show is brought to you by Shopify Plus, the enterprise platform that powers the very best brands in the market from Allbirds and Gymshark to Staples and Heinz. And if you like this podcast, if you like what you're hearing, please visit Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. Reviews are the number one way to support a show like this and make sure it gets in front of as many people as it can. So please take a minute to let us know what you think. And in fact, there is one thing I want to know from each of you. Who else do you think we should talk to for this series? Who do you want to hear from? 
Include that in your review and let us know your nomination for who our next guest should be on Apple Podcasts. Now, without further ado, let's get back to Steve Madden. The irony in hindsight is that thanks to Belfort and Stratton Oakmont, the IPO is a huge success. The Steve Madden share price takes off and before it comes crashing down for you personally sometime later, for the first time in your life, you have real wealth and real capital. At that time, what were the right things you were doing with that money to grow the business? Yeah, I guess it was just investing in people. I would hire a little bit more people than the business could sort of afford, but I knew that I was building into it. So that that was where the money went. I remember thinking and looking, I had like maybe nine employees, you know, thinking like, how the hell am I going to afford all these people? You know, like, but, and it was a bit of a three ring circus for a while, but it worked out. It kind of expanded into all these things. In 2002, at the very height of what Steve Madden, the business was becoming, you are convicted of the financial crimes that stemmed from your relationship with Stratton Oakmont, and you begin a sentence of which you eventually serve 31 months in prison. When you go away, you have to, of course, step down as CEO while you are locked up. Yeah. What was the extent of what influence or involvement you had on the business while you served your time? I had very little, other than be a cheerleader for the guys when they came to visit me, pat them on the back. I mean, they really, they would, you know, they would ask me some questions, but to be honest, I really wasn't much help. I was busy trying to survive in prison and I'm sort of a tactile sort of executive. I need to sort of see it and touch it. I was just trying to get through this sentence that I was in, you know, trying to figure out how to survive. And, and I knew that I had a great team or I had a capable team and I knew they would be okay. And, um, I had another thing to do, which is to get to get through this. So that's what I did. Your release comes in 2005, and immediately you're back at work. You wrote in your book that people in the fashion industry are pretty forgiving, but you knew you had to earn their forgiveness. What was the response to you and to your company when you came back? It was fantastic. You know, everybody was ready for me to join, and there was excitement, and uh, it was a fantastic time. Yeah, 15 years ago. In fact, this wasn't the second time for you, Steve? Like in 1990, where you were this outsider trying to break in again? No, it was a little different, but that's good. I never thought about that. First of all, getting out of prison is the, <laughs> it's the greatest feeling. Like the, for the first month, you're like floating in the air. Oh my God, a sandwich. Like, you, you like it's like unbelievable. So it was... a great time. It was quite different from the beginning. Well, the business then is really killing it. You're up to nearly $500 million in revenue by 2006, which itself is up about $100 million from the year you were released. Because of a deal you had to make with the Securities and Exchange Commission, you are prevented from becoming an officer of your company for a little while. You've said that one of your superpowers is to find the right people and get out of the way. In fact, in your book, you tell the story about being voted the MVP of your youth basketball team, even though you never played because you'd willingly deferred your court time to the better players, which in the end helped your team win. So years later at Steve Madden, you are the creative force behind the company, but you've given yourself, I think, kind of tepid reviews for how you served as CEO. And you said, at least for how it pertains to some company founders, quote, you have to let go if you want to get really big. When I could become an officer again, I thought, 
no, it's going quite well. I can do what I want. And I'm still Steve Madden and I work with wonderful people. And it was, it was the best for the company and for me. And I think that Bill Gates has done that. He's got the greatest CEO. And for me, you know, I was a good CEO for that time, for that size. But, you know, as things went on, I, I, it was bigger and lots of P&L statements and lots of legal briefs and real serious stuff that I had no interest in. I just wanted to make shoes, you know, and so it worked out quite well. I wanted to ask you what advice you might give others in a similar position you were in. If a company founder happens to lean more toward the product and creative side like you did, who would you say are the two or three most important hires that a person needs to make so that they really get the most out of their business? The obvious one, you know, would be a numbers person. And I did that very early on. My third hire was this accountant, this Indian fellow. He's the CFO. He's retiring this year, 71 years old. We've had an amazing run together, 30 years. I hired him, he was like my third guy. And he just was able to organize the place financially, which companies my size were very sort of slapdash in that respect. And that was another thing. I was ahead of the curve financially because of this guy. That was another just serendipitous move on my part. I had no business hiring a guy like that when I was selling 300 pairs of shoes a day. So it all kind of worked together. Well, of course, one of the big dominoes there falls in 2005, three years before he would become your CEO. You bring in Ed Rosenfeld, this impossibly young-looking vice president who was handling mergers and acquisitions for PJ Solomon. I just liked his name. He sounded you like a Jewish that... bootlegger from Canada, the Eddie Rosenfeld, like a Jewish said... gangster. Let me tell you about Ed Rosenfeld for a second. So what I loved about Ed Rosenfeld was he was a banker and he was doing okay. You know, young hotshot banker working on M&A deals. He says, I don't like this. I want to build a business. I said, great. And, you know, I didn't really know him. He had a great sort of energy about him. And also I liked his name, Eddie Rosenfeld. So. He started and he just started and he didn't even have a title. He was just, he sat in my office at a little desk and you know, we just grew together and in five years later or three years later, I don't even know, he became the CEO of the company. And he's, if you ask people on Wall Street who they respect, you know, bankers and analysts, they'll say Ed Rosenfeld. So it was just an, another very lucky hire like Arvin, the Indian fellow, those kinds of things. Sometimes you need luck in business, and it was just sort of an instinct that these guys were, you know, had a little magic. In the time after your release from prison, Steve Madden really goes global for the first time, thanks in large part to the efforts of your brother, John. And in doing so, your store count and revenue kind of have shot way up into the stratosphere since. Yeah. What were the do's and don'ts about international expansion as your company learned them? Don'ts? would be not to put too much in between you and the customer. So what we would do initially is we would sell shoes to a distributor who would sell them to someone else and then the customer would get them. And that model didn't hold up because the customer needed a person who was buying them. It needed to be a good price and it needed to have value. And if you're padding all those people in, it sometimes doesn't work. So I think that's the don't. And what about the other side of that? What were the best things you did in going international? When you're dealing with the Southern Hemisphere, try to sell as many sandals as you can. (laughs) 
that was a shocker for me. You know, something so little and, and common sense, like in Mexico, they sell sandals. In Puerto Rico, they sell sandals. Like, wait, you don't like my boots? No, we don't sell that here. It's hot 12 months here. So you have to learn the rhythm of the countries. I'll wrap up here, Steve, with a few quick personal questions, if we can. You have this dress-down style to you that's almost become a trademark. You're most often in a ball cap and T-shirt like you are with us today. You've joked in the past that you dress a bit like a mechanic. Yeah. But all that's to say, you know, you don't necessarily flaunt that you're a rich guy, even though you've achieved some wealth in your life. If it isn't clothing or the way you present yourself to the world, what's something that you really like to splurge on? I love golf. I am passionate. It's like my hobby. It's something that my dad taught me when I was a little boy. And um, I'm not very good at it, unfortunately, but I love to play it. And so I do spend money on that. That's my little sort of thing. It's certainly not clothes. You became a father later in life. How old are your kids now? I have two 13-year-olds and a 7-year-old. Some of the more challenging parts of your life that you've been so open about publicly, uh, addiction, prison. If you haven't already, how do you imagine you might discuss those things with your children? I think, uh, you know, I mean, look, we're in the age of Google, right? I mean, you can hit a button and get anything on anyone. So why, there's no more secrets. Oh, this. So why not turn it around and use it to help people? That's sort of my view of it. You know, it used to be like, I mean, there was a time when, you know, you didn't want all the, like a divorce. You didn't want anybody to know about that or whatever it was, you know. But today, everything's out there. Everything. Every speeding ticket. And it, it's sometimes terrible, but that's the society we live in. So why not get in front of it? Last one, Steve. You say in the final pages of your book that you want to leave behind a profitable company that's a force for good. Are you the type of person that will ever fully retire? Or would you like to have a role in Steve Madden, the business, for as long as you're able? So I'm still somewhat young, and I, I'm in good shape. And, I, and uh, COVID made me, I have to say that COVID made me a little dull. I want to say that, but I'm trying to work through it. No, I don't plan on retiring, no. I like shoes. I like, I like the challenge of making shoes. Some of the other bits in the business of, uh, you know, are a little stuff that I'm not quite fascinated with. And so thankfully, we have a company that deals with everything. So many things that I couldn't care less about, but I do care about the shoes. So I've been so lucky that I can just do that, you know. So no, I don't see myself uh, going off to Happy Acres. I want to thank our guest today, Steve Madden. There is simply no one quite like him. Somebody who has been so willing to speak with equal candor and transparency about the highest and lowest moments in his life, both in and out of business. His book, The Cobbler, How I Disrupted an Industry, Fell from Grace, and Came Back Stronger Than Ever is available now. Steve, this was a pleasure. We are grateful for your time. Thank you for being with us on In Conversation with Shopify Plus. I enjoyed it. Thank you. All right. Thanks again to Steve Madden. And thank you again for listening. If you like what you heard today, there's going to be more good stuff coming in this series. We've got Chip Wilson, the founder of Lululemon, and Danny Reese, the CEO of Canada Goose, to name a few. So subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And to find more of our interviews with guests like Tamara Mellon, the co-founder of Jimmy Choo, Damon John from Shark Tank, 
and Seth Godin, the best-selling author, visit us online at inconversation.shopifyplus.com. Thank you.